Section 37 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Decline of the Byzantine Empire. Ravages of Roger of Sicily, A.D. 1146, by George Finlay. From the enthronement of the Comenian dynasty in A.D. 1081, which was accomplished through a successful rebellion, attended by shameful treachery and rapine, the Byzantine Empire, and especially Constantinople, its capital, passed through many vicissitudes. But the sack of the city by Alexius Comnenus, the founder of the line, was remembered by the populace to the disadvantage of all his successors. The last of whom, Andronicus I, ended his reign in 1185. John, the son of Alexius, 1118-1143, ruled with discretion and ability, and recovered some territory from the Turks. Manuel I, the son of John, 1143-1181, ruled during a period of almost constant war, and for a time he held the enemies of the empire in check, but he appears to have been more endowed with courage and the spirit of enterprise than with good judgment, and his conduct of the empire coincided with events that, as seen in history, contributed to its decline which after his death followed rapidly. As this decline is to be dated especially from the passing but not ineffectual invasion of Roger II, King of Sicily, in 1146, some account of that, together with a view of conditions immediately proceeding, becomes important in a work like this. The century and a half before Roger's invasion had been a period of tranquility for the distinctively Greek people of the empire, who had increased rapidly in numbers and wealth and were in possession of an extensive commerce and many manufactures. The century and a half before Roger's invasion had been a period of tranquillity for the distinctively Greek people of the empire, who had increased rapidly in numbers and wealth, and were in possession of an extensive commerce and many manufactures. Therefore, they were perhaps the greatest sufferers from the adverse events which befell the state. The Emperor Alexius I had concluded a commercial treaty with Pisa towards the end of his reign. Manuel renewed this alliance and he appears to have been the first of the Byzantine emperors who concluded a public treaty with Genoa. The pride of the emperors of the Romans, as the sovereigns of Constantinople were styled, induced them to treat the Italian republics as municipalities still dependent on the empire of the Caesars of which they had once formed a part, and the rulers both of Pisa and Genoa yielded to this assumption of supremacy and consented to appear as vassals and liegemen of the Byzantine emperors in order to participate in the profits which they saw the Venetians gained by trading in their dominions. Several commercial treaties with Pisa and Genoa, as well as with Venice, have been preserved. The obligations of the republics are embodied in the charter enumerating the concessions granted by the emperor, and the document is called a chrysobulum, or golden bull, from the golden seal of the emperor, attached to it as the certificate of its authenticity. In Manuel's treaties with the Genoese and Pisans, the republics bind themselves never to engage in hostilities against the empire, but on the contrary, all the subjects of the republics residing in the emperor's domain become bound to assist him against all assailants. 
They engaged to act with their own ships or to serve on board the imperial fleet, for the usual pay granted to Latin mercenaries. They promised to offer no impediment to the extension of the empire in Syria, reserving to themselves the factories and privileges they already possess in any place that may be conquered. They submit their civil and criminal affairs to the jurisdiction of the Byzantine courts of justice, as was then the case with the Venetians and other foreigners in the empire. Acts of piracy and armed violence, unless the criminals were taken in the act, were to be reported to the rulers of the republic whose subjects had committed the crime and the Byzantine authorities were not to render the innocent traders in the empire responsible for the injuries inflicted by these brigands. The republicans engaged to observe all the stipulations in their treaties in defiance of ecclesiastical excommunication or the prohibition of any individual, crowned or not crowned. Manuel, in return, granted to the republicans the right of forming a factory, erecting a key for landing their goods and building a church and the Genoese received their grant in an agreeable position on the side of the port opposite Constantinople, where in after times their great colony of Galata was formed. The emperor promised to send an annual of from 400 to 500 gold Byzants, with two pieces of a rich brocade then manufactured only in the Byzantine Empire, to the republican governments and 60 Byzants with one piece of brocade to the archbishops. These treaties fixed the duty levied on the goods imported or exported from Constantinople by the Italians at 4%, but in the other cities of the empire, the Pisans and Genoese were to pay the same duties as other Latin traders, excepting, of course, the privileged Venetians. These duties generally amounted to 10%. The republics were expressly excluded by the Genoese treaty from the Black Sea trade, except when they received a special license from the emperor. In case of shipwreck, the property of the foreigners was to be protected by the imperial authorities and respected by the people, and every assistance was to be granted to the unfortunate sufferers. This humane clause was not new in Byzantine commercial treaties, for it is contained in the earliest treaty concluded by Alexius I with the Pisans. On the whole, the arrangements for the administration of justice in these treaties proved that the Byzantine Empire still enjoyed a greater degree of order than the rest of Europe. The state of civilization in the Eastern Empire rendered the public finances the moving power of the government, as in the nations of modern Europe. This must always tend to the centralization of political authority, for the highest branch of the executive will always endeavor to dispose of the revenues of the state according to its views of necessity. The centralizing policy led Manuel to order all the money which the Greek commercial communities had hitherto devoted to maintaining local squadrons of galleys for the defense of the islands and coasts of the Aegean to be remitted to the treasury at Constantinople. The ships were compelled to visit the imperial dockyard in the capital to undergo repairs and to receive provisions and pay. A navy is a most extensive establishment. Kings, ministers and people are all very apt to think that when it is not wanted at any particular time, the cost of its maintenance may be more profitably applied to other objects. Manuel, after he had secured the funds of the Greeks for his own treasury, soon left their ships to rot, and the commerce of Greece became exposed to the attacks of small squadrons of Italian pirates who previously would not have dared to plunder in the archipelago and may be thought by some that Manuel acted wisely in centralizing the naval administration of his empire. The great number 
the small size and the relative position of many of the Greek islands with regard to the prevailing winds render the permanent establishment of naval stations at several points necessary to prevent piracy. Manuel and Otto ruined the navy of Greece by their unwise measures of centralization. Pericles, by prudently centralizing the maritime forces of the various states, increased the naval power of Athens and gave additional security to every Greek ship that navigated the sea. The same fiscal views which induced Manuel to centralize their naval administration when it was injurious to the interests of the empire prompted him to act diametrically opposite with regard to the army. The emperor, John, had added greatly to the efficiency of the Byzantine military force by improving and centralizing its administration, and he left Manuel an excellent army, which rendered the Eastern Empire the most powerful state in Europe. But Manuel, from motives of economy, abandoned his father's system. Instead of assembling all the military forces of the empire annually in camps, where they received pay and were subjected to strict discipline, Towards the end of his reign, he distributed even the regular army in cities and provinces, where they were quartered far apart in order that each district, by maintaining a certain number of men, might relieve the treasury from the burden of their pay and subsidence, while they were not on actual service. The money, thus retained in the central treasury, was spent in idle festivals at Constantinople, and the troops dispersed and neglected became careless of their military exercises and lived in a state of relaxed discipline. Other abuses were quickly introduced. Resident yeomen, shopkeepers, and artisans were enrolled in the legions, or the convents of the officers. The burden of maintaining the troops was in this way diminished, but the army was deteriorated. In other districts, where the divisions were exposed to be called into action, or were more directly under central inspection, the effective force was kept up at its full complement, but the people were compelled to submit to every kind of extortion and tyranny. The tendency of absolute power being always to weaken the power of law, and to increase the authority of the executive agents of the sovereign, soon manifested its effects in the rapid progress of administrative corruption. The Byzantine garrisons in a few years became prototypes of the shopkeeping Janissaries of the Ottoman Empire, and bore no resemblance to the feudal militia of Western Europe, which Manuel had proposed as the model of his reform. This change produced a rapid decline in the military strength of the Byzantine army and accelerated the fall of the empire. For a considerable period, the Byzantine emperors had been gradually increasing the proportion of foreign mercenaries in their service. This practice Manuel carried further than any of his predecessors. Besides the usual Varangian, Italian and German guards, we find large corps of Patzenaks, Franks and Turks enrolled in his armies and officers of these nations occupying situations of the highest rank. A change had taken place in the military tactics caused by the heavy armour and powerful horses which the Crusaders brought into the field, and by the greater personal strength and skill in warlike exercises of the western troops, who had no occupation from infancy, but gymnastic exercises and athletic amusements. The nobility of the feudal nations expended more money on arms and armour than on other luxuries, and this becoming the general fashion. The western troops were much better armed than the Byzantine soldiers, war became the profession of the higher ranks, and the expense of military undertakings was greatly increased by the military classes being completely separated from the rest of society. The warlike disposition of Manuel led him to favour the military nobles of the west who took service at his court while his confidence in his own power and in the political superiority of his empire deluded him with the hope of being able to quell the turbulence of the Franks and set bounds to the ambition and power of the popes. 
The wars of Manuel were sometimes forced on him by foreign powers, and sometimes commenced for temporary objects, but he appears never to have formed any fixed idea of the permanent policy which ought to have determined the constant employment of all the military resources at his command. For the purpose of advancing the interest of his empire and giving security to his subjects. His military exploits may be considered under three heads. His war with the Franks, whether in Asia or Europe. His wars with the Hungarians and Servians. And his war with the Turks. His first operations were against the Principality of Antioch. The death of John II caused the dispersion of the fine army he had assembled for the conquest of Syria but Manuel sent a portion of that army and a strong fleet to attack the principality. One of the generals of the land forces was Prosuch, a Turkish officer in high favour with his father. Raymond of Antioch was no longer the idle gambler he had shown himself in the camp of the Emperor John, but though he was now distinguished by his courage and skill in arms, he was completely defeated, and the imperial army carried its ravages up to the very walls of the Antioch, while the fleet laid waste the coast. Though the Byzantine troops retired, the losses of the campaign convinced Raymond that it would be impossible to defend Antioch should Manuel take the field in person. He therefore hastened to Constantinople as a supplicant to sue for peace, but Manuel, before admitting him to an audience, required that he should repair to the tomb of the Emperor John and ask pardon for having violated his former promises. When the Hercules of the Franks, as Raymond was called, had submitted to this humiliation, he was admitted to the imperial presence, swore fealty to the Byzantine Empire as Prince of Antioch, and became the vassal of the Emperor Manuel. The conquest of Edessa by the Mahometans, which took place in the month of December, 1144, rendered the defence of Antioch by the Latins a doubtful enterprise, unless they could secure the assistance of the Greeks. Manuel involved himself in a war with Roger, King of Sicily, which perhaps he might have avoided by more prudent conduct. An envoy he had sent to the Sicilian court concluded a treaty, which Manuel thought fit to disavow with unsuitable violence. This gave the Sicilian king a pretext for commencing war, but the real cause of hostilities must be sought in the ambition of Roger and the hostile feelings of Manuel. Roger was one of the wealthiest princes of his time. He had united under his scepter both Sicily and all the Norman possessions in southern Italy. His ambition was equal to his wealth and power and he aspired at eclipsing the glory of Robert Guiscard and Bohemond by some permanent conquests in the Byzantine Empire. On the other hand, the renown of Roger excited the envy of Manuel, who, proud of his army and confident of his own valour and military skill, hoped to reconquer Sicily. His passion made him forget that he was surrounded by numerous enemies, who had combined to prevent his employing all his forces against one adversary. Manuel consequently acted imprudently in revealing his hostile intentions. While Roger could direct all his forces against one point and avail himself of Manuel's embarrassments, he commenced hostilities by inflicting a blow on the wealth and prosperity of Greece, from which it never recovered. At the commencement of the Second Crusade, when the attention of Manuel was anxiously directed to the movements of Louis VII of France and Conrad, the Emperor of Germany, Roger, who had collected a powerful fleet at Brindisi, for the purpose either of attacking the Byzantine Empire or transporting the Crusaders to Palestine, availed himself of an insurrection in Corfu to conclude a convention with the inhabitants, who admitted a garrison of 1,000 Norman troops into their citadel. The Corfutes complained with great reason of the intolerable weight of taxation to which they were subjected, 
of the utter neglect of their interests by the central government, which consumed their wealth, and of the great abuses which prevailed in the administration of justice. But the remedy they adopted by placing themselves under the rule of foreign masters was not likely to alleviate these evils. The Sicilian admiral, after landing the Norman garrison at Corfu, sailed to Monombasia, then one of the principal commercial cities in the east, hoping to gain possession of it without difficulty. But the maritime population of this impregnable fortress gave him a warm reception and easily repulsed his attack. After plundering the coasts of Euboa and Attica, the Sicilian fleet returned to the west and laid waste Acarnania and Atolia. It then entered the Gulf of Corinth and debarked a body of troops to Crissa. This force marched through the country to Thebes, plundering every town and village on the way. Thebes offered no resistance and was plundered in the most deliberate and barbarous manner. The inhabitants were numerous and wealthy. The soil of Boeotia is extremely productive, and numerous manufactures established in the city of Thebes gave additional value to the abundant produce of agricultural industry. A century had elapsed since the citizens of Thebes had gone out valiantly to fight the army of Slavonian rebels in the reign of Michael IV, the Paphlagonian, and the defeat had long been forgotten. But all military spirit was now dead, and the Thebans had so long lived without any fear of invasion that they had forgotten the use of arms. The Sicilians found them not only unprepared to offer any resistance, but so surprised that they had not even adopted any effectual measures to secure or conceal their movable property. The conquerors, secure against all danger of interruption, plundered Thebes at their leisure. Not only gold, silver, jewels, and church plate were carried off, even the goods found in the warehouses and the rarest articles of furniture in private houses were transported to the ships. Bales of silk and dyed leather were sent off to the fleet deliberately, as if they had been legally purchased in time of peace. When all ordinary means of collecting booty were exhausted, the citizens were compelled to take an oath on the holy scriptures that they had not concealed any portion of their property, yet many of the wealthiest were dragged away captive in order to profit by their ransom and many of the most skilful workmen in the silk manufactories, for which Thebes had long been famous, were pressed on board the fleet to labour at the oar. From Boeotia, the army passed to Corinth. Nisiphorus Caliphus, the governor, retired into the Acro-Corinth, but the garrison appeared to his cowardly heart not strong enough to defend this impregnable fortress, and he surrendered it to George Antiochinus, the Sicilian admiral on the first summons. On examining the fortress of which he had thus unexpectedly gained possession, the admiral could not help exclaiming that he fought under the protection of heaven, for if Caliphus had not been more timid than a virgin, Corinth should have repulsed every attack. Corinth was sacked as cruelly as Thebes. Men of rank, beautiful women, and skillful artisans, where their wives and families were carried away into captivity. Even the relics of St. Theodore were taken from the church in which they were preserved and it was not until the whole Sicilian fleet was laden with as much of the wealth of Greece as it was capable of transporting that the admiral ordered it to sail. The Sicilians did not venture to retain possession of the impregnable citadel of Corinth, as it would have been extremely difficult for them to keep up their communications with the garrison. This invasion of Greece was conducted entirely as a plundering expedition, having for its object to inflict the greatest possible injury on the Byzantine Empire, while it collected the largest possible quantity of booty for the Sicilian troops. Corfu was the only conquest of which Roger retained possession. The ruin of the Greek commerce and manufactures has been ascribed to the transference of the silk trade from Thebes and Corinth to Palermo, under the judicious protection it received from Roger. 
but it would be more correct to say that the injudicious and oppressive financial administration of the Byzantine emperors destroyed the commercial prosperity and manufacturing industry of the Greeks, while the wise liberality and intelligent protection of the Norman kings extended the commerce and increased the industry of the Sicilians. When the Sicilian fleet returned to Palermo, Roger determined to employ all the silk manufacturers in their original occupations. He consequently collected all their families together and settled them at Palermo, supplying them with the means of exercising their industry with profit to themselves and inducing them to teach his own subjects to manufacture the richest brocades and to rival the rarest productions of the East. Roger, unlike most of the monarchs of his age, paid particular attention to improving the wealth of his dominions by increasing the prosperity of his subjects. During his reign, the cultivation of the sugarcane was introduced into Sicily. The conduct of Manuel was very different. When he concluded peace with William, the son and successor of Roger, in 1158, he paid no attention to the commercial interests of his Greek subjects. The silk manufactures of Thebes and Corinth were not reclaimed and reinstated in their native seats. They were left to exercise their industry for the profit of their new prince, while their old sovereign would have abandoned them to perish from want. Under such circumstances, it is not remarkable that the commerce and manufactures of Greece were transferred in the course of another century to Sicily and Italy. End of section 37. Recording by Daniel. End of The Great Events by Famous Historians. Volume 5, edited by Charles F. Horn, Roster Johnson and John Rudd.